Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And we're very pleased today to have Natasha Leonard here, a columnist, journalist, and author who's been published in The Nation and The Intercept, uh, Esquire, the list goes on and on, an activist, a, a wonderful person as far as I can tell from the beautiful writing that she's done, and uh, a, a friend and colleague of uh, former guest of the pod, Brad Evans as well, who uh, she worked with on the, the book on violence last year, excellent book, and has a new book out that everyone should read because it's a really beautiful series of essays called Being Numerous, um, Living an Anti-Fascist Life, that I believe was composed over several years, maybe four years, and uh, yet seemingly brings together beautiful uh, in-the-moment responses to kind of the terrors of late capitalism with the kind of beautiful responses that hopefully we can all collectively have to better face the ravages of, of capitalism and fascism. So welcome, Natasha. Oh, what a lovely introduction. Thank you for having me. Hello. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I failed to mention that you also studied philosophy at Cambridge, if, if I'm not correct, incorrect. I did, I did. Yeah, I don't usually like open with that. But I suppose my, 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 I think my voice is sort of posh enough that I can't really hide anyway. Um, no. But yeah, I, I did. I, I, my background's in um, really dry analytic philosophy. But well, that yeah. speaks all the <laughs> better good. to your essays, right? Because I don't know, Ryan, what did you think? I, I found it a delightful mix of uh, the political, the theoretical, uh, from Vidal Sassoon to Foucault and Arendt, right? Judith Butler, Agamben, uh, but also in the kind of writing that you just feel immersed in and that you could read at the beach. So that's a, a, quite an accomplishment. And our, oh. nerdy, our nerdy listeners, I'm sure, will love it. <laughs> yeah, take it to the beach, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fight yeah. the fascists at the beach. Right? <laughs> exactly. um, don't hesitate to use that posh voice um, because Americans, as we all know, are very vulnerable to to the British accent, you know, so that gives you a key leg up in the in the influencer marketplace, you know. Oh, yeah. I don't think I would have had like really any any career at all, except if I went like when I was like a young blogger at Salon, like they'd be like, put her on TV. It's English. Um, but yeah. You know, I would say that, but you can't, you, you, you know, you can't, uh, everyone's got their advantages and disadvantages and just got to run with it. Yeah, it's one of those like balances of check your privilege or weaponize your privilege. Weaponize your privilege, <laughs> absolutely. Draw them in, right? So, so seduce people with the, with the beautiful posh language <laughs> and, then, and then hit them with the anti-fascist philosophy. That's the key. I love yeah. it. Uh, so it, I noticed that, uh, which... I think this might be the first time I've come across, uh, at least in recent years, uh, the use of Wittgenstein, whom I love, in um, crafting both an analysis of our kind of contemporary capitalist, fascist um, ideologies and uh, problems, as well as kind of a recourse to how not to respond and how to respond. So uh, I also saw that you have a tattoo of the the duck rabbit on your arm. I so do. I do. You, you want to talk about, tell, tell our listeners a bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah, like always love a tattoo story. No, um, so uh, yeah, so this is one of the things I did take away from my uh, analytic philosophy background. Um, so Ludwig Wittgenstein is, you know, usually and rightly known as um, a philosopher of, of log logic and language. And, and he is, um, and is, he's not kind of explicitly political in any of his work, but the, the way in which his later work focuses on the consensus-based, movable, and messy ways we make meaning in the world, I think, leaves a kind of really important opening and, in fact, a kind of demand for reckoning with that kind of collective action and the ethics therein that you know if if the world isn't pre-organized in categories with rules as rails as to how meaning works and what we name what and we have to do that work together and power plays a role therein I mean that's political work even if Wittgenstein didn't make that explicit I see his work as really political in that sense and um, when it comes to a question of fascism and how he's relevant to that I'm not actually the first person to to conjure him Umberto Eco in the 90s 
in trying to give a definition for what he called ur-fascism, he made the point, which I wish more people kind of remembered, it's not that long ago, that we might want to deploy Wittgenstein's notion of the family resemblance uh, language game of naming. Um, and so Wittgenstein used the example of a game. So I can't give you one complete solid definition of the term, the concept game, that for any possible example, that definition would work, right? Like tennis has two players and a ball, football has two teams, but does that mean there have to be more than one person? No, you can play like solitaire against yourself. And I think you keep going and keep going and realize that we use the word game really sensibly. Like we're not mad when we use it, we're able to use it even though it doesn't have this kind of bounded definition, what we're dealing with is this kind of overlapping, connective Venn diagram of, of sets of things that different things we might want to call game share, but they don't all share all of those um, aspects. So we might think about fascism the same way and stop asking for this, is it fascist, is it not, what's the definition, is Trump a fascist? Um, and realize that actually this should function as a kind of unbounded concept and assemblage of, you know, authoritarianism, nationalism, misogyny, transphobia, racism, all of which can be like kind of moving round and part of the equation, but don't all have to be there all at once for us to call a phenomenon fascist. Um, and I think having that unbound concept that still has usefulness allows us to, you know, be ethical about it and be like, well, what, what should we be calling fascist? What, what does it mean to call something fascist? If we call something fascist, that kind of implies this phenomenon deserves an anti-fascist response. What does that look like? And so I think that sort of interrogation is much more useful than this kind of flood of commentary that we've had in the past few years of, like, is X fascist or not? Um, like, that doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for thinking philosophically and usefully about what fascism even means. No, that's, that's beautiful. I think that's so true. It's, it's a form of knowledge despite not having the ability to pin it down in an essence, or, you know, that has essential features that you can reduce it to. And, and this seems to be a theme in your book generally about how to respond to some of the complexities of the problems that we have, um, you know, insofar as we can still know fascism and then think, as you say, about, you know, the, the meaning is in the use and the context. So let's think through how we are using politically um, or what discussions are we having? Because you, you get into later on with rights discourse and the law and the state. Um, what, what work is being done by our fixation on whether it's civility discourse or rights? Um, so I think there's a beautiful through line here that that um, through Wittgenstein, you, you kind of uh, and I, I saw that the, the ghost essay was was beautiful. And I thought like Wittgenstein's presence was kind of haunting the, the book as well, it seemed to me. Um, this notion that these forms of life, these ethical practices politically that we uh, involve ourselves in, if we just think what we are doing, to use an Arendtian term, right, um, we can then uh, not fixate so much on the reduction, on the essence, and, and think more about who we want to be, what, what's, what's real and what we can know um, that makes us live together well. Right. I, like, well put, you know. And I think that's why I kind of like thinking in the same vein of a lot of these phenomena in terms of not kind of nouns but gerund verbs like what is fascisting because that like plays into more like you're saying what work does this set of phenomena and the people that take up these practices and tendencies and how they flourish like what work does it do in the world do we want do we want to be giving that space and fostering it or do we want to be shutting it down and I think sometimes when you're thinking of things in sort of verb form rather than static objects um it can be more useful and it can also put us in a position of being like well what kind of habits actions verbs do we want to be applying to to what we're doing um so so yeah it's it's I think if it could be if if glossed over it could be read as this sort of base relativism or like subjectivism but it's not that it's just saying that you know maybe just you're less essentialist about ontology and what gets to exist and realize that these things come about through social organization and, and collective activity 
they're nonetheless true. It doesn't make them sort of airy fairy and relativist. It just right. means it takes it just means it takes more work and it means reckoning with power. Right. Yes, yeah, neither relativist nor some transcendental out there or empirical, um, just simple thing that exists in the world, but it, it exists through us and our relations to each other, right? Yeah, nailed it. It's <laughs> good stuff. It's so fun. You, you talk a lot about um, uh, violence and uh, antifa and in the um, and protests throughout the throughout the whole book, and. Um, I wanted to ask if, if you could tell us a little bit more about the kind of uh, uh, unpacking your sort of dismantling of the popular, like liberal discourse and mainstream media and so on about, you know, v- violence, counter violence, you know, the, the, and confronting the, the problem of fascism and, and where, uh, you know, sort of conventional understandings go awry. Sure, absolutely. And, um, you know, I've been writing about the kind of old canard of violence versus nonviolent tactics in um, protest for, for a really long time, not just when kind of Antifa versus like neo-fascists became big kind of news objects. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so a few things, and like mainly when I address this, it's about picking apart and challenging mainstream liberal media frameworks and locations of violence. So first of all, I think um, outright decryals of violence of any type, anything that gets called violence, obviously does this problematic collapsing of values to say that, you know, anti-fascist counter-violence makes anti-fascist activists as problematic as neo-Nazis is obviously like a really dangerous stance to take up. Um, It kind of completely makes void that there is something more violent about having a genocidal white supremacist outlook than being opposed to that by any means necessary. So that's like kind of one overarching part of it. Another aspect is um, what kind of activity gets called violence. So in a lot of protests that are named violent, um, according to kind of state delineations that the media then parrots, breaking a Starbucks window is violence. You know, um, setting a trash can on fire is violence. Um, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as violence against inanimate objects. For example, the desecration of a synagogue by neo-Nazis, that's a violence that has a victim. Um, but I'm not sure chain bank windows, um, unless you're kind of of the state mind that corporations are people too, um, should count as as acts of violence with with victims who who we would consider victims of violence. So that's one thing, and and when the media uses that framework, the state's logic around violence and property damage, it's a really terrible way of um, enabling the sort of repression that uprisings like we saw in Ferguson and Baltimore receive, um, because property damage and and and, and rioting is considered senseless when, of course, it is not. Um, and then there's the other point I like to make, which is when you're talking about protests, particularly with when, you know, there are clashes with police or clashes between fascists and Antifa, there's this, this media phrase that's so common, which is the kind of the protest turned violent or the protesters turned violent. And I have a big problem with this violent turn, Um, which so often places the kind of instigation of violence on, on the, say, the Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, If you are in a state of affairs where young black people, or even old black people, are just being killed by by the state, by cops, um, at point-blank range with impunity, and you have to say, you have to say it all that Black Lives Matter, then we've got a background state of violence. So, you know, the idea that the protesters turned to violence um, 
to me, ignores that like violence was the underlying, undergirding state of affairs. Same with if you've got neo-Nazis freely chanting blood and soil, um, you know, this is a background state of violence. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't mislocate where the violence emerges. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about a violent interaction with police, you're talking about a counter-violence, and I think that's important. I like to use the word counter-violence. Um, and, you know, this is not also, like, my new brand new idea. Uh, Angela Davis made this point really well in the 70s when people asked her about, um, you know, like, do you do you condone violent protest? And she's like, you know, I we when you have to live with constant, constant brutality and violence put upon you by virtue of, the color of your skin and the kind of location of your community, it makes absolutely that it makes no sense to ask, do I condone violence or not? Um, so I think those are kind of a few of the main arguments that I think are worth always thinking when you read a kind of news story that uses the term like violent protest, which is also not to say that I think there's no room for lots of like non-violent political action or what gets deemed non-violent political action um, that can get the goods too. Like, you know, it's not that every single protest has to be physical, confrontational, or even relating to property damage. Like you just have to realize what you're trying to potentially achieve with a given protest action. And I'm truly like against the idea that people should be thrown under the bus because they see grounds for property damage or militant confrontation because those things have also earned a lot of victories in the history of struggle. Absolutely. Yeah. And as you say, on the other side of the equation, um, you know, the, the cops and the criminal justice system apply a stupid stupendous amount of violence constantly throughout the country um you know you you have an essay about uh uh stand the standing rock protests mm -hmm. and you know there's all those pictures of um all all these rural police departments which has have been uh, given um MRAP mine resistant vehicles that are from Iraq, you know, and like these bear claw tanks with uh, heavy machine guns on top of them. And, you know, I, there was one woman who had her arm almost blown off by like a concussion grenade and all this other horrible uh, violence. And then, you know, of course, the violence of like dragging someone to a prison cell or putting a tracker on their ankle and putting them in jail. Um, right, and and let alone kind of putting their very their very ability to like live, breathe, and survive on land at risk by the pipe from by virtue of the pipeline in the first place. You know, yes. but like the 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 police violence there and the kind of militarized violence there was that's almost the kind of auxiliary violence to the violent cause. Right, right. It's to secure the annihilation of the ability to, to, to breathe and have soil and land. Uh, it, it's just um, right. a, sec a secondary enforcement violence. It's, uh, I think that's so important, your discussion all the more of counter-violence and engaging in the actual uh, form of life, the practice of trying to, to set uh, understandings of these terms is all the more important when the background assumptions implicit in the state and the media are these kind of uh, reactionary or liberal definitions of violence that, uh, as as MLK pointed out in his Vietnam speech, right, uh, it's great when citizens are nonviolent apparently, but when the same critique is leveled against the state in in their war or in their policing, oh no, that's that's not the same. That's actually strength, and and that's good. So there are these lo logics of violence that are deployed against the oppressed, against the citizens and in favor of the state that uh, if we don't challenge them through these writings, through the, the actions with bodies on the streets, um, th those definitions will um, be ceded to power, it seems to me. Right, and it, mean, and it makes for, for, for bad solidarity when we, when we need it. Like the idea that, you know, one protest that, in, say there's a kind of black bloc protest that engages with property damage and confrontations with police, I mean, and then, so for example, the J20 
the protests uh, on the actual day of the inauguration, which led to a mass arrest. There was a, a black bloc of which I was uh, marching with, you know, what, what will I admit to publicly? Um, so I was, I was where I was present. and um, you're, you're giving us way too much credit to call us public, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. <laughs> to comrades only. Um, but, you know, there was a there was black bloc protest that was meant to be kind of disruptive on the actual day of Trump's inauguration, um, you know, picking up black bloc tactics hardly new. And there was quite a lot of property damage in D.C. against, you know, Starbucks and bank windows. And there was this huge mass arrest, over 300 people, you know, lots and lots of my friends, all of whom were then facing up to 70 years worth of felony charges. It was such a kind of infirm and unjust mass arrest that after about two years, the government had to drop all these charges. But that's still two years of fear. And that's still two years where you're not able to be organizing or being back out doing the activism that that you want to do and you want to support. And so then the next day you had the, the Women's March, which was vast and peaceful. And I'm not interested in, like, shitting on the Women's March. Some of its right. um, principles, that its kind of principles of purpose were, were radical and gave, eventually kind of gave, gave room to sex worker organizing and real, like, feminist propositions and intersectionality. And, you know, I'm fi- I think it's fine if what you want of a day of demonstrations is to bring people together, make them feel you know, emboldened in a moment where everyone's feeling kind of lesser and afraid, then that's great. And people can be politicized, especially young people or even old people who've never been out in the streets before can be politicized on big kind of joyous days like that. And a number of the kind of organizers did offer solidarity and and spoke out in support of the J20 arrestees but then I saw one like liberal female journalist and I'm not just like not saying her name. I actually don't remember because she could have been like one of 10 who I kind of always confuse, but just like really hashtag resistance liberal. And she tweeted, oh, amazing day at the Women's March and, you know, so proud of everyone. And, you know, especially because no one got arrested as if that's supposed to be this like kind of glorious thing that like you were so placid that the state didn't even have to like push back against you and I felt that was like all the more all the more offensive on that it was happening the very day after 300 people had been arrested right who were no less invested in like resistance and justice than the purported resistance fighters of the women's march so I mean those kind of things Really just like, you know, which which side are you on? Um, that's right. I th- yeah, it's a great critique of liberalism. I, and, and I'm sure she was happy to have brunch afterwards because if Hillary Clinton was in office, we could all just go to brunch. <laughs> exactly. <apparently. laughs> exactly. And, I was like, oh, God, like, look, full luxury automated gay communism. We'd all be at brunch all the time, okay? <laughs> yeah, talk about privilege. But really, that that's the, the liberal problem theoretically seems to be this notion that the status quo – uh, when quote unquote peaceful and civil is not violent, is not problematic, and so the the norm erosion is the problem, or the incivility is the problem, um, and it feeds into the reactionaries so so perfectly. Um, it, it's it's just an epistemological blindness because of privilege. It, it mm-hmm. seems to me. Yeah, um, and that's why you make a great distinction between kind of what are parades permitted by the state. Uh, similarly, you talk about rights discourse and the law and the state not be, you know the appealing to the conscience of the state or or doing you know parades that the state allows and regulates is not going to disrupt fundamentally that violent order of the status quo. Right, and so yeah, so one of the kind of reflecting on a reported essay I do about these J twenty arrests and about the the legal battles that um, some water protectors faced after Standing Rock. Um, I do this kind of reflective essay in the book about rights discourse, as you say. Um, and again, it's about kind of being tactical. So if you're in court uh, and you've been arrested and your First Amendment rights have been violated, like they were with the J20 defendants, 
You'd be mad not to say, you violated my rights. This is an, an unjust prosecution. Um, but you have to recognize that in doing that, you are unavoidably, and that's just true, it's unavoidable, in interlocution with the state. So you have to use the state's logic. And a rights discourse is always about a conversation with, the, with a state. There is no conception of like human rights that is relevant unless it's being granted and recognized by some sort of authority. I mean, Hannah Arendt made that point that we can't really talk about rights unless we talk about the right to, who can be a bearer of the right to have rights. And that's related to recognition. And the state has to recognize you as such a bearer. So, you know, given that we live in a world of states and state power, we have to use that logic and we should use it well. It's stupid to abandon it. We also have to protect it and stop it being attacked as it is being attacked and it should become more and more robust and we should have a, a robust understanding and conception of rights that should include economic rights not just really limited like humanist rights um uh but you know i don't if we limit our protest and our dissent to that which is enshrined in you know first amendment rights um we'll have very little leeway to, to kind of pose pose a problem to the status quo we're trying to battle. And I mean, there's no, there's no right to punch Richard Spencer, but I think it's um, a super, super just thing to do. So I think collapsing rights and justice um, has been a kind of useful liberal trick, even if it hasn't been intentional. Um, but I think it very much like stymies both our ability to fight beyond what is kind of state-sanctioned, but also to understand the, like, the logic of rights and to actually look seriously at the history of how neoliberalism has given us a more and more impoverished set of rights than, than would dreamed of by even some liberals earlier last century. Yeah, there. <clears throat> I have a theory about this. Maybe you could uh, tell me what you think of this... Uh, and t attempting to explain why kind of liberals like Jonathan Chait or um, Connor Friedersdorf <laughs> have been absolutely flipping their shit about leftists on college campuses, like calling, you know, Christina Hoff Summers a big meanie head <laughs> while totally ignoring the J20 protests for the most part, you know, like... Talk about, you know, missing the elephant in the room. Um, but it it appears to me as though, you know, the liberals are, are focused on these these the norms of a sort of free liberal capitalist society, you know, and it is true that like um, democracy depends on these sorts of norms, you know, and like people people broadly speaking, buying into the general sort of constitutional structure and so on. Um, but any, any democracy like that is vulnerable to like a sort of a critical mass of the population no longer believing in the system, which, you know, I mean, that's what got the Weimar Republic, basically. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. And... And no, uh, feel free to interrupt Ryan at any point. No, no, no. I want, I want to. No, I want to listen. But I'm I do it finished. all the time. I'll feel better. The, yeah. uh, the but the the point being that like people see the the um, the right is increasingly abandoning the norms of democracy, and liberals like they criticize them for doing that. But it's so obvious that they don't care. And it's kind of baked into the cake now that like the right is just constantly committing crimes. The president's a criminal. He's going to completely ignore any sort of constitutional responsibilities, so on and so on. Um, and so I think this like neurosis and this fear of confrontation gets pushed onto the left because they know that the left is, is more vulnerable to criticism and will feel an obligation to respond It'd be like, oh, you're stupid, Jonathan Chait. Anyway, yeah. what do you think? No, I completely agree. <laughs> I think, I mean, the, his, the, the thing is, it's like, there's this, a lot of the kind of centrist liberal, and I, I think Jonathan Chait is like a unique idiot. So like, there are, there are people <laughs> like very less special. 
stupid than him who still kind of without even maybe meaning to uphold this this mythos because it's been so kind of jammed down our throats through so much whitewashed history of struggle and how democratic norms have been established um and um lionizing of institutions without realizing that sometimes upholding institutions that protect our 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 rights or our freedoms um has perhaps sometimes taken some illiberal interventions right like uh, a great example is the Emancipation Proclamation was um, executive authoritarianism in a way. Um, like, if Lincoln had left it to a popular vote whether to sign it, it would not have happened. So I think, like, actually Astra Taylor has got a new book out called Democracy May Not Exist But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and I think it's excellent in teasing yes. out how, um, yeah, I mean, democracy... A lot of liberals now seem to like long for the days of November the eighth, two thousand sixteen, as if like that was the moment <laughs> that liberal democracy slipped away. And she kind of points out that that all democratic projects and practices have always been um, really kind of fraught with contradictions, and and some of the some of the most expansive democratic or democratizing acts have not looked like liberal democracy. Um, and so, and liberal democracy itself has always been a kind of compromise. And over the past 100 years, it's increasingly just been a compromise away from anything like socialism, certainly as a way of fighting against communism and towards capitalism um, without people paying attention to the kind of violences and inequalities that that fostered that no doubt had the seeds of authoritarianism and, and fascism therein so longing for that sort of perfect model that's always been a compromise with compromise is problematic in and of itself and and a kind of failure of looking at like the, the movability of what liberal democracy has been over a hundred years last a hundred years um and then i think in terms of this kind of fear of paranoiac fear of confrontation and this kind of desire to to be more critical of kind of the far left than the far right and say, you know, you're, you're the real fascists because free speech, um, is, uh, that's also nothing new. Um, like to call upon MLK again in his letter for, from Birmingham jail, he talked about the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, to a positive piece, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with you with your methods of direct action. And I mean, I think it's sort of, there's this irony that these sort of conservative liberals would so often call upon MLK as the model we're all supposed to um follow um but then i'm i'm pretty sure i mean if one can so guess speculate on what people would have been like i'm pretty sure these kind of centrist conservative liberals would have been the problematic white moderates he invokes at the time so you know it, it it just becomes it just becomes sort of irritating and exhausting and pathetic that people like Chait don't see themselves in that in that conservative history. Right. No, that, that's that's spot on. It seems to me, and um, you'll be happy to know that. I mean, it's been great seeing you and Astra Taylor in conversation of, of late. Uh, she's actually the next guest on Left Anchor, so you'd be happy to know that. Oh yay! Um, yeah, how, so it'll be a great great sequence. Yay! Uh, and I love how you both talk about the, both the history and the future as necessarily contested. And maybe this is why the left is different from liberalism, which um, is, is so in love with the status quo and, and that negative piece. The left understands the need for constant struggle and co- constant movement and constant, not just contestation over, um, you know, actual, whether it's standing rock and, and physical space or land or um, freeing prisoners, but the contestation over ideas. Um, and I think it's really important to engage in, um, so, so for example, these different tactics and strategies that are deployed to, to liberate 
uh, are multifarious. And, and, and as you say, it's important to not just have, uh, I mean, MLK and, the, and nonviolent direct action is important, but, but so can punching Richard Spencer in the face be important, right? Uh, and in fact, you bring up a surprising anecdote in, in talking to your uncle, I believe, about um, a number of things. But Vidal Sassoon was a Nazi puncher. Is this true? Oh, yeah. So this is my, I was talking to my grandfather who's English. Sorry, sorry. Of course. Yeah, of course yeah. And he was, he's, he told me that his father, but also he's a man of a lot of kind of myth making. So, but I lo- I'm going to hold on to this possibly being true because I, <laughs> I want it to be. He told me that his father, who, um, you know, this, it would add up, was fought in the Second World War. My family's quite young. Um, his, his father fought in the Second World War and returned from for England um returned from fighting and was it was a Jewish man who lived in the east end of London and after the second world war there was contrary to this kind of myth that all fascism just fell off the face of the map in 1945 um there was a re-emergence of of British fascism and a lot of violence and um harassment and um desecration of synagogues and homes in the uh, by fascists in the Jewish areas of, of East London and um you know Oswald and his Oswald Mosley and his black shirts were regrouping and, and having big rallies and in return these ex Jewish ex-service members formed um essentially like a, a proto or like an original Antifa group. They were the they were a kind of fighting gang who, you know, were willing, their their idea was their sort of slogan was maim don't kill. And they used these um really quite aggressive anti-fascist confrontational tactics to break up and drive away Oslo uh Mosley and his black shirts. Um it was called the 43 group. And it kind of was based mainly around London, but had offshoots in different parts of of England. And it was really, really successful um, at kind of shutting down the possible breathing room and space and tolerability for fascists to organise. And one of the members was a famed hairdresser, Vidal Sassoon, who passed away uh, not so many years ago. And, you know, in his obituaries like the New York Times obituaries or whatever he's lionized as kind of living the really the anti-fascism he felt and and fighting against the kind of awful fascism that that hadn't been eviscerated enough in the war and and he was so celebrated for that but his tactics were far more kind of extreme than anything we've seen Antifa take up. I mean, they, they use knives, batons, knuckle dusters, and you've seen, and there are kind of a few, not too many, but there are, you know, there's not a lot of space given to anti-fascist history in mainstream historians' tellings, but there are a couple of documentaries, and, and now these seem kind of like cardigan-wearing sweet old men, the, the few 43 group members who are alive, um, but they don't talk with any regret about the brutality that any means necessary tactics they used to drive away fascists from their homes, from the streets of London. And it's this classic kind of canonizing of um, revolutionaries and activists of the past and critiquing them in the future, which liberals find so comfortable. Like they love being on the right side of history once it's over. (laughs) That's right. Um, But yeah, little known fact about Vidal Sassoon, the hairdresser. Punched lots of Nazis. (laughs) This is fascinating to me. I think Ryan agrees with me that punching Nazis is a a laudable thing that helps justice. But we we did, um, when when Brad Evans was on, um, it was interesting because Ryan raised the point that, uh, right, not at least Hitler and uh, that, you know, instantiation of fascism was defeated through violence or uh, as we might call counterviolence, right? Um, And... And Brad made the, the very good points that, sure, at that point that was required, but if you go back far enough, maybe a different world could have been achieved in nonviolent, through nonviolent means. That's, that's what I took him to mean. But what's interesting here is what you, what you seem to be showing is that perhaps earlier on what's needed is quashing 
the uprisings with counterviolence in a way that doesn't allow them to, to kind of grow because of the liberal uh, space that's protecting really them, their, their nonviolent or their violent ideology to, to grow in the soil of tolerance in a, in a way. So I'm curious what your, what your take is and if you had a, a talk with Brad about that difference at all. Um, I mean, we, we haven't discussed that particularly. I, I feel like, you know, that you, one can make a kind of benign, but like true point that if we built a world where people are right. nourished and live more communally and aren't starving, segregated, caged, yeah. resentful, um, organized through racial difference, organized through borders, then sure. the kind of there need, need. Yeah. that like the kind of production of violence that, d- that then desires, demands a counter-violent response in- to quash it wouldn't. But I'm like, okay, sure. Like that is sure. like, yes, <laughs> true. Like I don't, if, if Brad's point is people aren't essentially people aren't essentially violent like sure but like i don't really think people are essentially many things like we've got um we've got a set of structures that exist now and like kind of hierarchies and set like kind of modes of oppression that are really entrenched and have been whispering through histories of power and monarchies and class war and and I think these um these things aren't easily undone and and I don't think will be politely undone so I'm sort of less interested in right you know pointing out humanity's innate potential goodness compared to arguing some Burkean like war all against all blah 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 um nastiness um it's more interesting of like what do we need now and sure and sure. and wait and how do we historicize um you mm. know what do we what do, what kind of histories do we take up and and learn from and which do we do we let be silent i mean there's there's very little i just read um enzo traverso's book new faces of fascism which i like a lot but i'm not like completely on board with all of it but like there's a lot of use to it it's also a verso book and he makes the point that um, you know, most post-war fascist historians have given very little room to anti-fascist history. Like, there's not a, there's not a lot of space given to the work really done by you know partisans. There's a lot of work done right. about like bystanders and stretcher carriers in Vichy, France, but like that they can't be the only heroes of history. Um, and in the same way, my friend Molly Crabapple wrote a beautiful thing recently for the New York Review of Books about the often overlooked history of the um, the Jewish Bund in Poland and beyond and how the kind of, you know, predominantly anti-Zionist communist organizing that, you know, was, was hugely powerful and, and really large at a certain point has largely been written out of Jewish resistance history. Hmm. And she's Jewish and I'm Jewish, so it's like, we're allowed, we're allowed to be anti-Zionists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Everyone is. Um, anyway, that's absolutely. a different Yeah, position. for sure. It does feel like the last few, um, you know, weeks and months have, have been a, a pretty clear example of how fascism comes to power because... You know, as you're sort of gesturing to in your in your essays, uh, fascism is not a a logical or even particularly compelling ideology for like a solid majorities. You know, like Hitler never got even with like massive electoral uh, repression more than I think thirty seven point five percent of the vote, something like that. But what they do have is energy, and um, you know organization and propaganda and um when you have that plus the connivance of conservative elites who fear the left more than they fear fascists and um you have the timidity of traditional liberals who won't you know uh stand up to them watching you know today 
the entire Republican Party standing absolutely lockstep behind Trump, while Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are, are just like tying themselves into knots, trying to trying to avoid confronting him directly with some sort of impeachment inquiry. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't think uh, Hitler's going to, you know, launch a nuclear war with uh, China or something, but like, you see how it happens, you know? Yeah, and, that, and I think, sorry, Karen. No, no, no. You're, um, oh, oh, yes. Yeah, no, completely. And it's like, I'm, and we don't need to say like, it's 1920s and 1930s Europe to see the way hateful authoritarian power desire desiring desires get fostered and calcified um through collectivities and then into more electoral spaces and how convergence from what used to be the center right then you know and the far right with fascistic habits tendencies elements happens so easily we're seeing that in america certainly and across europe um and and the way in in recent generations that certainly what counted as the left was essentially this bereft technocratic neoliberalism that also didn't provide any sort of nourishing alternatives so the job of the left to really provide better alternatives is is ever more important and you know that and and remains really, really quashed and, and labor unions are def- decimated even though workers' struggle continues and um, Nancy Pelosi's a fucking pussy and... Sorry, not supposed to use that language, are we? Um, <laughs> I You're allowed one. to use any, any language, any language um, you want on, on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. it's sort of gendered insults, not so good. But, um, but the... Um, but yeah, and then you have kind of ridiculous statements like from people... Like horrible Joe Biden, who's like, you know, if I if I become president, I'm pretty sure that the Republicans will will get really into compromising, um, which is, and I think you've kind of got two ways of reading that. Like either he's he's just really dim and naive, or he's actually really not troubled by this fascistic status quo. And the right. fact that the Republicans won't bend, and that the Republicans and the right will keep winning. Um, and I think he's I think he's more invested in the status quo than he is an idiot. Um, so, you know, like those are the questions we have to ask too about, especially in the realm of realpolitik, um, being opposed, who is really like opposed to this further shift right, given that it doesn't, as fascism never has, run counter to capitalism. Right, it's it's born of it and part and parcel of it. I, I think that's a, a important point you make uh, throughout, which is that, that fascism isn't just a historical moment. It's like Trump was elected, fascism arrived, or or it's come back. And, and the the point I think you make that's really important uh, is that, um, as you know, Foucault pointed out, fascism lives in us individually, collectively, and and it's at least the potential for it is there, and we and we have to. Uh, look out for the the kind of tyrant in ourselves. And so, you know, when you see that the privilege of the Joe Bidens who is used to sneaking up on women and sniffing their hair <laughs> and, and, th- and at the same time thinking he's a great guy, right? Uh, th- that, of course, is, is going to be an epistemological blindness to, to how oppression operates because you've convinced yourself uh, that all these oppressions aren't occurring. So I think what, what, when you're, when you're, your essays are so helpful, I think, to show that all these problems are interconnected insofar as they're about how we relate to ourselves and our own tyrant, how we relate to our partners, to the state, to law, to collectivities. Um, it's all about how we understand uh, how to live together. And, and, and I think that's, I mean, that's, maybe you can speak a bit about your title, Being Numerous, because I think that goes to, to that point, right? Yeah, I mean, the titles from um, the, t- the the phrase, well, two, two words, Being Numerous, um, comes from a George Oppen poem, um, and he's a sort of late great poet um, who wrote a poem called Of Being Numerous in, I think, 68, late 60s. Um, and it's a sort of beautiful, epic poem about, I mean, many things. It's hard to kind of <laughs> it's hard to round up a poem. But um, a lot of it is about how kind of we become flows in a city and how we become organized and 
disorganized and the the phrase we have chosen the meaning of being numerous um really kind of struck me especially in this kind of age of mass surveillance and the way in which we're categorized as sort of civilians and and organized in that sort of way um we're, we're enumerated and we're quantified but we're and that's the way we almost have chosen or enabled or been forced into being numerous currently but what, what would it mean to choose differently how to be numerous and how to be mass um so I kind of want to invoke the idea of yeah mass movement um togetherness collectivity multitudinousness um but also use that phrase to point out that the current mode of being numerous is is atomized and individuated and um we might want to choose choose the meaning differently that's beautiful comrade i, I really oh appreciate that <laughs> thanks um i had let's see maybe maybe one more um topic to 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 bring up um returning to the standing rock protests one thing that jumped out at me and sort of sort of ties in with our with our previous discussion is the issue of of climate change and also the spills that these um these pipelines tend to produce uh you know so this people maybe have kind of forgotten this, but the the Standing Rock protests happened. They started in 2016 when Obama was president, and this was just one of literally thousands of pipelines that um, were built under the Obama administration. I mean, he boasted in a debate with Mitt Romney in 2012 that they had built enough pipelines to wrap around the entire planet. Mm. Um, as part of the all of the above energy strategy, which has made the United States the biggest producer of oil and gas in the world, ahead of Saudi Arabia, even, and um, you know, so you have this on the one hand, you know, tearing out all of these flammable carbons, uh, carbon fuels that that uh, are you know causing right now extreme weather um, and rising sea levels and a host of other disasters, even earthquakes in Oklahoma and elsewhere, and, um, you know, predicted to, according to the science, uh, do much, much worse than that in the future. And then on the other hand, as you point out, there is a bill uh in november 2017 two hundred ten thousand gallons of oil um i think the worst spill in in the history of the uh the midwest at least is this this famous uh or infamous the dilbit spill in uh kalamazoo in michigan i think right yes and this was a million gallons and not just oil it's diluted bitumen so it's this this uh this like ta- this sludge stuff that they get from tar sands, and you can't pump it unless you inject it full of, like benzene and other shit, and it has to be pumped under high pressure. So when there was a leak, it spewed all over the place and just completely just wrecked this entire little community. So, I mean, sort of tying that, I feel like you do a good job tying that uh, all together in this this senseless pursuit of profit and just the violent beating down of anybody who tries to challenge this logic that's literally strangling human society and uh, animal and biological society throughout the planet uh yes sorry i was like is there is it more of a comment than a question uh-huh. <laughs> that's cool i actually really like i really like, when when there's like q and a's and people like more of a comment than a question i'm like okay cool that's good i don't yeah like i've said enough so, um, thank you for that that was good yeah. no but no i agree i also so you know about to, to talk of um you know the mass violence of environmental degradation we're in a you know it's 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 heartening to see energy especially like real political energy around something like the green new deal and i am pro that but um there was a very good essay recently and i'm 
to my shame, don't remember the author, but it was in the excellent Commune magazine, pointing out that just replacing all the energy for production that we have now with green, sustainable energy will not be sufficient to sort of not to, to solve the kind of global problems and decimations we're facing and so much the suffering that isn't just about carbon burning. Uh, we have to change modes of production and how they're organized and run and owned. Um, so I think, you know, thinking the Green New Deal is is sufficient rather than necessary and insufficient is crucial, but I'm glad it's these kind of things are on the table. But then I'm also glad we've got voices from further left than sort of mainstream democratic socialism pointing out the kind of bigger problems of living on this planet with any sort of like equity and dignity. Well, there's a question, though. Um, if, If the Green New Deal isn't sufficient and, you know... Like, I mean, as I read that, I, I forget the name of that guy, too, but I know the essay you're talking about. Um, he seems to be suggesting that just like a high any high standard of living and like use of resources and energy is sort of like like in, untenable. So, like, what's the what's the answer? I don't know if it's sort of like high standard of li- it depends what you mean. I think kind of the examples he gives is like a new iPhone every two years and that like. <laughs> Things are organized that companies like Apple organize their iPhones such that we need two iPhones every two years and that they get away with doing that because of the way the means of production are organized. Um, The amount of, yeah, the amount of consuming we do. And I think not all of us consume equally. Of course, some people consume very little and can only consume very little. Um, I think it's the kind of argument when people are like, oh, so you want everyone like living in gray sludge on the on, <laughs> on the omnibus um and it's like no i just think like there are definitely kind of excesses in types of production of certain things that don't serve really any of us don't even really make rich people happy and, no they're miserable they're right miserable. and so like yeah. these are the sort of things that like a broken down remantled communized set of social production and material production perhaps wouldn't not so interested in the accumulation of profit wouldn't be producing and like nor should we I think the kind of thrust of that essay is like let's while thinking of remaking the economy along green sustainable lines that surely the dream isn't to keep everything exactly the same but just powered by green energy of course not that's right no, and you, because you make a great point about desire throughout, uh, and, and capitalism, as Foucault shows, right, uh, shapes our desire. And do we really want what we think we want? Do we really want? Do we really truly authentically desire that new iPhone every two years? Uh, so, so it's not just, as you say, changing even distribution or changing um, these these different uh, ways that we uh, do energy, but. And I think this is why your essays are so important. Our very ability to access who we are, who we want to be, what we desire, as opposed to what capitalism is pushing on us to desire, right? That itself will probably get rid of the need to overconsume in these ways that are problematic, I would hope. Sure, but and that can't be done individually, right? It doesn't help just sitting around being like, I will self-evolve in this sort of neoliberal <laughs> way. It's like, what? Ooh, no, Absolutely. I will find peace and go to a silence retreat. I mean, like, go do that if you want, <laughs> yes. fine. But like, it's about. Yes. What about generating like different collective desires and and ways of like surviving and living and challenging the status quo of how that is organized, which does take like material activism and work, not just like yes, like to ch- to shift desires entails shifting material conditions, right? It's not just like that's right. Kumbaya, hold hands, think about it, stuff. No, I've had students who, when they finally engaged in activism that effectively changed both epistemologically their understanding of the problems, but also gave them those, that solidarity and those desires that were new in order to, to fight the regime and, and seek a more communal life, to stop being numerous and to start being really communist and collectivist and, and, and united. So um, I think that's a, that's a beautiful vision. Yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Well, thank you, Natasha, for, for joining us and, and sharing all this with us. And you're, you're always welcome to come back anytime and, and talk about punching Nazis or anything <laughs> else you'd like to talk about. 
Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Oh, awesome. It was so nice. Thank you. And have a nice chat with Astra. That'll be great. Absolutely. The book is Being Numerous. Is it out now? It's out now. So it's Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life, and it's out with, uh, from Verso Books, and they have a direct order thing from their website. All bookshops. It's in bookshops. Cool. We'll put that, we'll put that link in the description. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.